Blog Talk Radio. Hi, I'm Ryan Tannehill, quarterback for the Miami Dolphins, and I represent the Fence Sider with the PH. All right. Hello, hello. My name is Keith. Welcome to the Finsider Radio Podcast. I'm your host until about 10 p.m. Eastern uh, tonight. We have a very special show for you this evening. We'll talk last Sunday's very interesting. And if you stayed around for the uh, after game fireworks and bleeding into this week, uh, the Super Bowl. Uh, Denver's defense pretty much looked like the hammer of Thor in that game. 13 hits on Cam Newton in a 24-10 Denver win. We'll talk about that. We'll talk about the upcoming NFL Combine, which players were excited to watch, which players can vault themselves into consideration for the number eight overall pick. That's the Dolphins pick. At 8.30 p.m. Eastern time, we'll welcome NFL Draft and Bengals writer Joe Goodberry to talk about new Dolphins defensive coordinator, Vance Joseph. Pretty sure Joe knows a thing or two about Vance Joseph. Uh, Joe's an old friend of mine. We once worked together for a draft site. And uh, we'll get his take on whether Vance Joseph was the right hire for Miami. And then at 9.20 p.m. Eastern, we'll revisit with Michael Carpenter of ESPN Radio 93.5 Champaign to talk about Cam Newton and his behavior this week. We'll talk Peyton Manning. We'll talk the Denver defense. Maybe we'll even talk about Puppy Monkey Baby. Uh, Until then, we'll take your calls, 347-326-9461. We don't have a ton of time. Uh, to chat with guests tonight, but I'd like to at least take a few of your calls. So uh, give us a ring. We'll talk about whatever you want. You can also tweet me uh, at KMB8488. I'm always watching my Twitter while I do this show. So if you want to go ahead and message me that way, you can, and we'll take some questions. Uh, in the meantime, let me introduce my co-host. He's a six-foot-tall South Florida native who loves quarterback talk, book club meetings, and long walks on the beach. Please welcome Lewis. How are you? I'm okay. I, well, actually, I should say I was okay until you put Puppy Monkey Baby back in my head. I knew that was going to be a problem for you. I'm sorry about that. Yeah, you're not sorry if you brought it up because you, and you knew it. Well, I forgot that you, you had a bad reaction to that. I and mean, we'll talk about that who later on. But... Who did it? Keith, who did it? Oh, my God. What were they smoking? Well, that's the thing. I mean, it's so much in your head that even though it's a negative reaction from a lot of people – it's still successful advertising, which is kind of sick when you think about it. Uh, I want to go ahead and introduce my other co-host. Last but not least, we have my longtime friend and insider co-analyst, the inimitable Duke. Hi, Duke. What's up? Uh, nothing. I'm glad to have both of you here, and we can just go ahead and get into it. we got a full show tonight. So uh, the Super Bowl, which was not the most fireworks in terms of scoring you're ever going to see in a Super Bowl matchup. Although uh, first Patriots Giants game was 17, 14 and people seem to love that game. This one was all about defense as we kind of expected. uh, Typically when a great offense runs into a great defense, the immovable object is the great defense. And that proved true on Sunday. Uh, Like I mentioned, 13 hits on Cam Newton. And all we heard this week or the week prior to the game was that Denver wasn't going to have the same amount of success uh, throwing a pass rush at 
Cam Newton that they did at Tom Brady. They were partly right about that. They hit Tom Brady 20 times. They hit Cam Newton 13 times. But it was enough. 24-10 uh, really shouldn't have even been that close had, had Denver had anything going under center. I don't mean to talk disparagingly about Peyton Manning, but it was bad. It was terrible. I made this joke earlier in the week, and I stand by it. Had Peyton Manning been a racehorse out there on Sunday, they would have come out there and euthanized him on the field. It it was that bad. I've never seen a a quarterback uh, with so much history and so many accomplishments look so bad. But that defense was good enough to drag him across the finish line, number one overall defense in the league, and they lived up to it. Von Miller was an absolute sledgehammer in that game. Look, Jackson was great. DeMarcus Ware was great. Derek Wolf was great. The linebackers are great. Dane Trevathan had a huge recovery of a TJ Ward fumble following an interception. That could have been a game changer for Carolina. They would have had the ball, I think, inside the 10. Uh, instead, Denver just kept rolling along, pretty much played a field position type game. It kind of reminded me of that last game in the Adam Sandler movie, The Waterboy, where the uh, that team just punts takes three knees and then just punts and relies on their defense the entire time. That was pretty much what Denver did in that game. And then they were able to force some uh, turnovers late in that game. They got a score and a two-point conversion off that, and it was pretty much it. So I want to go ahead and get your guys' reaction to the game because, uh, unfortunately, a lot of people have focused on what happened after the game and the days following the game. And I'm talking about Cam Newton and, and that entire mess. We will get to that. We'll get plenty of takes on that um, from us and when uh, Michael Carpenter gives us a call at uh, 9.20 Eastern time. But right now, let's just talk about the game because it was an old-school game. And I know a lot, this is a passing league right now. It's built on the quarterback. It's built on just scoring boatloads of points. But I, I dig hard-nosed uh, defensive-oriented football. I like Wade Phillips. I think Wade Phillips is one of the, the great defensive coordinators of the modern era. Uh, I love that one gap three, four scheme that he employs out there in Denver. Uh, and it was just a defensive it for those guys. It was a, a slobber knocker. I don't know that I've ever used that term before actually, but it was, it was a, a hard nosed, brutal defensive contest. So we'll start with, we'll start with Lewis, just your take on just the game. I mean, what did you think? Were you as bored to tears as some people or did you, did you enjoy it? What was your big takeaway from Super Bowl 50? Well, I'm probably going to be the odd one here, but I thought it was awesome. I was I was loving the uh, the tension, the intensity of what was happening. For once, the offense was not running the um, for once the offense was not running the floor the whole time. I was able to watch the game and wonder, okay, so which offense is finally going to be able to break free and actually get the one touchdown that's probably going to decide this football game? I, I was. I was I was invested in it all the way through. I wanted to know who was which defense was finally going to come out on top. Which which one would finally make the play that turned out to be the play? And as it turned out, it was going to be Von Miller for the Broncos who finally broke it and made that stuff happen. And honestly, I was enthralled with it. I loved uh-huh. I loved the idea. Okay. I look for it. Turn the light on. Look for it. Go ahead. Nah, I'm, it's alright. Nah. Um, anyway, I was I enjoyed watching the two defenses face off against each other. For once, it wasn't about the quarterbacks. I mean, you can try all you want to to talk about Peyton Manning and his final day and Cam Newton all about um, 
his issues after the game, but in all essence, it was defensive smackdown, and I love that. It proves once and for all, at least in the eyes of educated people, that in the end it's defense that wins championships, and I'm actually doing a, some research for something that I'm writing up um, right now about how defense still wins championships, and this game was picture-perfect proof of just that. I was going to ask you that this is a win for people who still believe that football is played at 10 other positions on offense and 11 positions on defense and not just the quarterback spot. And I know that you're someone who you talk about that often on Twitter. Did you feel validated after this game that there is more to life than just the quarterback position? Well, I personally did before, but uh, the fact that I need validation at all is should be a problem in and of itself. I mean, Cam, like, I, I don't understand. I don't think there's – I'm hoping that there's nobody out there who saw what Cam was able to do all year long and then suddenly say, oh, well, I guess Cam sucks after all. I'm really hoping that that isn't the case because I think Cam is better than some other people I know say that he is. I think that he's a really good quarterback. His off-the-field issues could stand some work, and probably they will forever. But I think Cam is very talented, and the Denver Broncos just shut him down. And the the Denver and the um, the Panthers' defense, they had Peyton Manning on the ropes for a very long time. Now, granted, his arm was fried, but he still had his brain. It's, it's, it, you could still tell that he knew what he was doing most of the time, and maybe he made a mistake here and there, but he still had his, – his mind was still working. His mind was still doing what it was supposed to do. And in the end, it turned out that he was practically – the reason they almost lost, which is kind of scary to think about knowing that it's Peyton Manning. So with that in mind, I really felt like if this game itself does not prove once and for all that in the end it's defense and that in the end that the best, a better team who wins the Super Bowl more often than not is the one with the top 10, top five, number one ranked defense, then I don't know what will. I thought it was a win for coaching too. I thought that Denver's coaching staff – uh, just coached rings around Carolina in that game. And I know that, I mean, nothing um, against Mike Shula. He called an, an incredible offensive game plan all year, Sean McDermott on the defensive side. But, I mean, Wade Phillips is an excellent game planner. And, I mean, he came to play. I mean, he was all about turning his guys loose. And, I mean, a key uh, a key cog for – um. Denver in that game was the fact that their defensive tackles played so well. Because, I mean, when you got those guys coming around the edge, I mean, you run the risk of losing contain. And, I mean, there was only a couple of plays where I saw Denver break contain. But for the most part, they, I mean, they were disciplined. They played well. They stuck to what they they knew. And they were incredible. Now, if you're, if you're Duke lives in North Carolina, so I wonder if his, I know his take's going to be a little bit different. But, Duke, what did you think of Super Bowl 50, the game? I mean, it was kind of old school. Um, you know, I was kind of – it was weird. I, I can't – most Super Bowls have had kind of either like a satisfying factor or a dissatisfying factor to it. Like, for example, when last Super Bowl, the when the Patriots intercepted that pass and you knew they were going to win, that was just – it was very dissatisfying. And then there's some that was – that have been – you know, where you know, like when the Giants beat the Patriots, you're kind of like, yes, it's very satisfying. This one was just I was completely apathetic to either way. 
of course, I was playing for Carolina. I'm from here. I've got you know, friends that are Panthers fans, and I was, I was wanting to win for the area. You know, that's, that would be big for the, for the city of Charlotte and for the surrounding area. Um, but as far as the actual gameplay, I thought it was, I thought it was good. I thought it was interesting to, to watch how they would these two good defenses battle each other. And you kind of knew that Denver's offense was not on par with was not on par with what uh, Carolina's offense was going to do. So you knew that the, the defense of Denver had 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 it cut out for themselves more than than uh, more than Carolina's defense did. But hang on just one second. While we're waiting for him, so Lewis, you bring on the phone. Be quiet. (laughs) I shouldn't laugh. Um, Someone's in trouble. Someone just put the smack down. Duke, are you there? Okay. So um, while we're figuring that out, and uh, I always love those sort of off-the-cuff moments that you get on a podcast, uh, nothing like recording from home. Uh, so, Lewis, you pretty much agree that Peyton Manning, I mean, he, I'm not saying he has to retire, but he pretty much has to retire, right? Uh, yeah, he's got to retire. He's done. If, he's not, was, if he doesn't, if he tries to come back from this, I don't know, then the man that I thought was very intelligent obviously is very not Okay. Uh, one thing I want to ask, so we've got a, a couple of minutes, we've got about 15 minutes before uh, we take on our first guest. Um, you've gotten more and more into watching a lot of these college prospects as we're getting closer and closer to the combine. So with that, I think that's about two weeks away now, or one week, two weeks. I don't even know the date of it off the top of my head. Uh, is there anyone you're really interested in seeing just from an overall standpoint Outside of Miles Jack, because I think everyone's excited to watch Miles Jack. Miles Jack is probably going to going to put on a first rate show. Then I guess I would have to say Reggie Ragland. I guess because I still maintain that a middle linebacker is the biggest thing that the Miami Dolphins need moving forward. If you don't have somebody to handle the the anchoring of the defense then they're just not going to get anywhere. And with all due respect to Ndamukong Sue, he's one of the best in the business at what he does. In fact, if he's not the best, but still need that anchoring middle linebacker to be the captain of the defense as they are intended to be and just stop letting people – I mean, Ndamukong Sue makes holes. Somebody has to be there to fill those holes. And Kelvin Shepard, yeah, he made a lot of tackles. The problem were is that those tackles were made after the running back had only already gained five or more yards. That is unacceptable. We need somebody with good instincts, with good speed, somebody who can be on the field at all times and will not be a liability. Kelvin Shepard was on the field at all times and was not impressive. So, I mean, with all due respect to him in the last couple of games, but he's just not worth the starting position. And in some teams, he wouldn't even be a backup. So if he's starting for Miami in the next season, there is a serious problem in talent evaluation. Will you be disappointed if the Dolphins don't take uh, a linebacker at that number eight spot? I will start getting nervous that they think that Zach Vigil and Mike Hall and those guys can do the job because I'm I'm not sure that they can. I'm hoping that if you don't take a linebacker in the first round or you decide to go with corner or tackle or something like that, then that you have a backup plan 
in the second round with somebody like Antonio Morrison or somebody along those lines who can handle that middle linebacker spot. I do not care what round it is, but make sure that whoever you get is a talented, uh, could be stud, if not a guaranteed stud. And make sure that that taking that is taken care of. You need a middle linebacker in this in this day and age. You just do. If you don't have one, your defense will struggle. I th- I have a hard time believing that Adam Gase and Vance Joseph and even Mike Tannenbaum will look at this roster and look at the linebacker core in Miami and think that this that the linebacker core is good to book. I don't think that's going to happen. I don't know that they're going to take one in round one. Maybe they do. Maybe they trade back. Maybe they just they go for corner, which is a, a higher valued position uh, more often than not anyway, and look to day two to load up. Because, I mean, they're going to need more than one. Maybe they pick up one in free agency. They need more than one. I mean, I think you and I, we've spent a lot of time talking about this, and I think we're pretty much on the same page that we know Jelani Jenkins can play the weak side. Everything else after that is one great big mystery right now, which is not a good thing when, when you're going in there, you've got Indomitian Sue dominating uh, up in the trenches. We don't know what's going to happen with Olivier Vernon, uh, his situation. Uh, Wake and his injury, I suspect he's going to come back. The, that guy's a freak of nature. Uh, I like Jordan Phillips. I think that I've seen some people down on Jordan Phillips as a defensive tackle. Uh, I know a lot of up and downs. Uh, this season, uh, you could tell that Sue was rubbing off on him in terms of how Phillips played with an edge later in the year. But he's a, a one-tech sized defensive tackle who can penetrate. And those guys don't grow on trees. I mean, you can find guys that big in the NFL, but uh, guys who are as, who are that big as Jordan Phillips, yet incredibly athletic, very rare. Guys don't grow on trees. So I think he's going to be a real asset going forward. Earl Mitchell, I want to like him. Um, I, I feel like more often than not, he's just costing the team money in the long run. And I don't know that they're seeing enough of a return. So that'll be something to monitor. But, I mean, they're going to need two linebackers. Corner, because there's got to be life after Brent Grimes. And we're already starting to see the... Uh, the sunset on that one a little bit. I don't mean to be rude or even demeaning, but, and then, I mean, Jamar Taylor hasn't worked out thus far, but the one thing to also consider is I'm curious to see how some of the current talent outside of the linebackers, because I agree with you that they can't roll with what they have now in terms of linebacker personnel. I'm curious to see how uh, Vance Joseph comes in and looks at the personnel and coaches the personnel. If we don't get more out of some of these guys, that's my hope. I mean, he had, he had excellent, excellent um, uh, play and productivity with Cincinnati, you know, uh, Cincinnati's uh, secondary considering the fact that not the most ultra talented bunch you'll ever see. I mean, good players in there, but it's not like it was built up of a bunch of superstars, but they got a ton out of that. And I wonder if he was able to watch Paul Gunther in Cincinnati and how he uh, coordinated the entire unit. And if that rubs off and he's able to get a lot from the personnel. I mean, that's my hope. We don't know. You got a guy who's going from position coach to defensive coordinator. That's always something where you're like, yeah, you know, we'll see. We'll talk more about that in about 10 minutes when uh, Joe Goodberry uh, goes ahead and uh, jumps on with us. But I'm with you that the guy I'm most excited to see uh, in Indianapolis is Miles Jack. I think Miles Jack has the most to gain right now. 
if he shows up even a little heavier, that's a huge win because I think people are going to feel a little better uh, spotting him inside as opposed to just writing him off as a guy who has to play uh, outside linebacker at the next level. I'm not saying he's going to come, come to the combine as a, a three, four house inside linebacker. You're not going to see that, but I mean, we've watched you and, and me, Lewis, uh, or I should say you and I have watched uh miles Jack tape and the guy is, I mean, the closing speed he has the ability to pursue. He has his overall tackling ability, all top notch. The guy look kind of looks like a, like a cheetah in the wild or something when, when he plays. I mean, he, he is that fast, that fluid, and really that scary in space. It's really hard to find linebackers who play that well. I'm excited too. I really want to see him uh, show up and just, you almost want him to put on too much of a show because we've got seven other teams picking before us and he could very well go in there. Although there's another thing I want to run by you and that'll take us into our next segment. Uh, Jalen Ramsey reportedly the number one guy on Dallas's uh, wish list for this draft. Now we've been talking before about, we thought Jalen Ramsey could go there. We've mentioned San Diego since they're going to part ways with Eric Weddle. Uh, Is there any way, and I don't think this is the case, but I'd like another opinion. Is there any way the Dolphins are going to get a chance at drafting Jalen Ramsey, or is that an absolute lost cause? Well, if everybody's as high on him as we think they are, then I would say that's a lost cause. And again, considering the Dolphins' needs, again, I I keep saying needs, and I'm sure there are a lot of people who bristle every time I say that, but this Miami Dolphins team is one that needs to draft based on need first. We can't afford to play the best player available game because the best player available could wind up being something that we just don't need right now. If it turns out to be, um, okay, let's say a wide receiver, if it turns out to be like Laquan Treadwell or something, is that something that the Dolphins should draft? I don't think they should. I think that's a waste of time. If it turns out to be, say, a center, like, it's not going to be a center, but it, it's just my point that that would be a waste of a pick. You need somebody who can fill up a spot that has a gigantic hole in it right this second, and you know for sure that it will happen. I mean, obviously it's a crapshoot in the end, but some players have much more of a chance of contributing to the game than others. And if you take somebody like Jalen Ramsey, okay, well, how much does that help right now? Do you want right now or do you want to wait until whatever and you want to try again later? Because if that's the case, then sure, go ahead. Try to trade up and get Jalen Ramsey because he'll handle the safety spot for the next however many years. And that's assuming you re-sign Rashad Jones and you don't need to have another safety later on. So you get Jalen Ramsey. You could put him on the, You could make him a corner. I think that would be a waste. But, you know, whatever, Miami Dolphins. Or you could make him a safety, and that's going to take care of your safety spots. But then again, the linebackers, unless you can find another player, is is going to be in serious trouble moving forward. I personally think that Jalen Ramsey will not wind up in Miami. There are a bunch of teams who could probably use him more right now and be, it's because they don't have holes in other positions. So I don't think Jalen Ramsey would fall to Miami for under any circumstances, really. It's got about seven minutes before we bring on our first guest. Uh, if you want to go ahead and give us a call, uh, I'm getting some questions on Twitter, but a lot of the stuff I'm getting, we've actually discussed. So it's, it's just kind of a, a coincidence that 
got a couple of questions about Miles Jack, and I think we we proceeded to answer that and the guys who we were interested in looking at. If you want to go ahead and give us a call, though, we got about six, five or six minutes, 347-326-9461. Go ahead, give us a call. We don't have a ton of time to chat, so I'm trying to uh, shoehorn all this in now before we go ahead and get with our uh, our first guest of the evening. Uh, outside of Miles Jack, uh, if I'm interested, uh, the cornerbacks in this this draft – and I'll consider Jalen Ramsey a corner because I think that, well, I've seen a lot of draft boards that have him rated higher as a corner than a safety, which is interesting because you mentioned him being a safety. I think that's ultimately where he ends up to. I think it's a, a testament to his overall incredible athletic ability that he's considered a high-end prospect at both. It's not usually a good thing uh, if you're a, if you're a guy who does both and they don't really know where to put you. Uh, Jason Allen comes to mind 2006 first round pick for the Miami Dolphins a great athlete just didn't really have a position and with with that the the Dolphins drafted a guy who just really struggled to fit in and they probably I think in uh was probably 2010 uh, 9 or 10 I forget what year it was when they were really using it would have been 2010 when they're using Jason Allen as a corner and he had a little bit of success and people were all excited about it and then just kind of fell off I digress, though. Uh, I'm really excited to watch Vernon Hargraves run. I want to see his long speed. I suspect that Mackenzie Alexander is just going to blaze an absolute path during uh, his his 40. You can tell on tape that that guy is just ugly fast. So um, I'm not as concerned. I mean, Har- I, one of my friends, uh, Zach, uh, I often collaborate with on draft stuff. Um, I talked to him a lot on Twitter and he brought up the fact that Marcus Peters had a, I don't remember his exact time. It was like four, five, two, four, five, three, somewhere in there, like low four fives. And I remember when Malcolm Jenkins at the 2009 combine, who was a cornerback at Ohio state said he wanted to be a cornerback and he went to the combine and he just could not crack for, he could not crack into a four fours. He was a low to mid four five guy. And at that time, everyone was like, uh, thanks, but no thanks. We'll pass. He's a safety. That's a, what he became. He went to New Orleans and had a lot of success there. You know, won a Super Bowl and uh, was a big contributor on a lot of good teams. But now you're seeing Marcus Peters runs a low four or five and at the combine and guys think, yeah, that's fine. We'll we'll roll with that. I think Hargraves is a four four guy. I suspect as much anyway. I think Alexander's going to be a low four four, high four three, maybe even. Uh, I, he's got that. I mean, he's just a, a quick twitch beast. I mean, he's just got great athleticism. It's incredible. So excited to watch that. I think Jalen Ramsey's going to put on a show too. I I know that he's got a lot of physical gifts. He can show off there. I'm a great vertical leap. I think he's practically a, an Olympic qualified athlete, which is ridiculous when you think about it. So, so a lot of guys I'm really interested to see. It's too bad because usually I focus on watching the offensive tackles and the wide receivers. And I won't do as much this year because uh, I should say offensive linemen. And I mean, there are some guys I think we could take later on, but I think there's such a premium place on drafting really good defensive players to fit uh, what Vance Joseph is looking to do on the defensive side of the ball and which is improve the talent, I suspect. So uh, there's a couple of groups I'm really excited to watch, excited to watch the linebackers. I don't think Reggie Ragland's going to run that well. And I think he's going to face a lot of questions about that great Alabama front that he had uh, in front of him. 
um, when he played there. So, uh, you know, Ashawn Robinson was a big time contributor inside for uh, Alabama. So I think Raglan will face a lot of criticism there. And some of it's warranted when you play in front of a, a front that good, uh, people are going to question uh, the ease with which you play the position when you don't always have a hat on a hat because you have um, offensive linemen who are overly concerned with doubling and triple, triple teaming the defensive linemen. So we'll see about that. Uh, it's a shame we can't watch Jalen Smith work out. Uh, I was a big fan of his, although I didn't really look at him as an ideal guy for Miami unless they rolled him to strong side simply because I think it would almost be a waste to put him uh, at middle linebacker with the the way that he flows to the ball and the way that he's able to, you know, pursue in space. I like Miles Jack a lot more inside than I do Jalen Smith. I feel like Jalen Smith would probably be a crime inside. So there's, a, I mean, there's a lot of good day two linebackers too. So, I mean, that's something else to keep in mind. Uh, but I, overall, I think it's going to be really interesting and you just hope that the Dolphins are able to figure out uh, a, a sound draft plan in which they can go ahead and add talent. Because as you mentioned, the linebacker core right now is bad. It's real bad. And I mean, outside of Jelani Jenkins, it couldn't, couldn't be worse. We'll, uh, we'll go ahead and we'll go the phones down. I just realized it's actually seven 30. So uh, he, uh, I don't know if he covers the Bengals anymore. He's an NFL drafter. He's actually my favorite NFL draft guy out there. Uh, I wish he would write even more stuff. He's a longtime friend of mine. Uh, Joe Goodberry. How you doing? Doing very good. How you doing, Keith? Uh, good. Uh, before we go ahead and get into a few things, I want to ask, I don't know if uh, it's still a fresh wound, but I didn't really see you give much of a take on what happened between the Bengals and Steelers in that wild card game. But as someone who is a Bengals fan, what was your take on just the sheer circus that took place before, during, and after that game? Yeah, and saying circus pretty much describes it all completely, I think, because, you know, before the game uh, and the previous two games that they played, each one of them got got out of control. The rivalry runs for, you know, the last 15 years, it feels like, over the last Marvin Lewis era, so the last 13 years. Um, So going into that game, you knew something was going to happen. You knew that the penalties were going to rack up. And the refs just kind of let it get out of control. And, you know, the thing is the Steelers keep pushing you. That's how – they're built. They're going to keep pushing you to the edge, and usually teams can't match can't match their intensity, and that's how they end up beating these guys. The Bengals tried to match. They went overboard, couldn't control themselves, and lost it. And it's just funny to see because they actually tried to match the bully. You know, they actually tried to fight back, and they did. And they're the ones that got suspended for it. And you know, kind of sucks. That's kind of how we came away with it. Like we could have won, could have won, and you didn't. Do you think you would have won that game if Andy Dalton was in there? I realize that's probably a duh question, but I'll still ask it. Yeah, I mean, and it's hard to say because Andy Dalton this year, sure, I think they they scored more than zero points in the first half. You know, they really scored everything there in that fourth quarter to to take the lead. Uh, I think Dalton would have at least got them something in the first half, which may may have made the end of the game uh, much easier to, to, you know, allow some penalties or allow some freak plays that happened. But – and again, Dalton in the playoffs hasn't shown to be that same guy, so I don't know what we would have gotten at that point. You've got some free agents in the secondary, which ties into Miami because a lot of people think the Dolphins could look at some of those guys to bring 
uh, Vance Joseph a little bit of familiarity as he gets settled as defensive coordinator in Miami. What guys are you set on keeping? What guys are you willing to part ways with? And is there anyone you absolutely must have? Yeah, must have. I think it's George Iloka. Not only is he 25 years old, uh, he's really started the last two and a half years and has played phenomenally. And not only being 25 years old, but he's 6'4", 225, and he can run and cover the deep free safety. That's not a normal player. That He's a freak, really. He, he The things he does for that defense allows them to really do whatever they want in the front because he doesn't get beat deep, and he can fly up and, and make hits and he can cover big tight ends because he has athleticism. I think he's going to get paid, and the Bengals better pay him before he hits free agency because if that happens, I, I don't see a way that they're going to match what he can get offered out there. Um, and I think they want to bring back Pac-Man Jones. Uh, he's had career years for them. He's he's better than he's ever been, even at his – he think he's 31 years old. He'll be 32 next season. But this year he was as good as he's ever been, and if not better, he made his first Pro Bowl. He really become a technical player. He, he looks good in, in zone and men, which he always never he never was always good in zone. He can press. He's playing physical. He's a guy that you got to depend on when your other two you don't really know what's going on with Drake Kirkpatrick because he's had an up and down career, and then you're probably starting Darquise Denard inside. So you really need to keep a dependable guy like uh, like Pac-Man Jones. The other one is Reggie Nelson coming off a career year again. I'm going to say that with a lot of these guys because I think. Vance Joseph is a reason why we've seen some of these guys have career years over the last couple of years. And uh, Reggie Nelson with eight picks this year, Pro Bowl, uh, really good player. And, you know, it kind of sucks that he's at that age now where you got to decide, do you go with a younger guy? And here's a guy coming off a career year. Do you keep him for one year, two year? Can you franchise him? I think he ends up walking. It's funny that Reggie Nelson now is viewed as such a, a key cog in the in the overall mix because I mean for such a long time there when he's in Jacksonville, almost looked at as a sort of yeah. sort of bust in that 2007 draft. After an incredible career, which he capped off with the national championship at Florida, and I remember him playing in that 2007 game against Ohio State. I mean the guy was just a whirlwind; he was everywhere. So yeah. I mean, it's funny funny how it works out. You know, you mentioned him. We'll get right to it. Uh, Vance Joseph is the new defensive coordinator in Miami, previously Cincinnati's defensive backs coach. Uh, We'll get into uh, what he did more with Cincinnati. I mean, you mentioned that he had a profound impact on some of those guys. Do you think he was the right hire for the Dolphins? Yeah, I think he was going to get hired uh, by somebody. In fact, last year, the Broncos asked permission to interview him for the defensive coordinator job. This is before they hired Wade Phillips. You know, and think about how different this year could have went had the Broncos been granted permission to, to interview Vance Joseph. That was Gary Kubiak wanted to bring him because he was with him uh, in Houston. He wanted to bring him as his coordinator because I believe Wade Phillips wasn't sure if he wanted to coach last year. Had that have happened, this whole NFL season may have gone differently. Um, so I think Vance Joseph was close to getting hired with, with multiple teams this year. If he chose the Dolphins, which it seems like he did, uh, yeah, I think that's you know the, the position you want to be in. Anytime you hire a position coach, though, you really aren't sure what you're getting. Uh, this guy's been around a lot of good defensive coordinators from Wade Phillips to Mike Zimmer, and I think Paul Gunther for the Bengals is on that. You know, it is going to be considered a good defensive coordinator in a couple of years. So. I think he's got a lot of experience. They thought he was a future head coach. I know the Bengals did. I know they talked to him after they turned down the request to let him interview. They said, we feel like you're you're an asset. You're going to be a future head coach. You may be our defense coordinator in a year or two. 
So they really sold him on coming back, and, and, you know, even though he didn't really have a choice, they still sold him on it and made him feel happy about it. So I think definitely uh, he's somebody that would have gotten a job. And, again, you never know what his style is going to be or what he's going to bring coming from a position guy, but you know the coordinators he's worked under, and you got to like all of them. I was going to say, uh, after watching that Super Bowl, I sure hope that Wade Phillips uh, rubbed off a little bit on him during their, their time working together in Houston. Yeah, for sure. So, all right, he's going to come in. And, I mean, the honestly, if you're if you're taking on this Dolphins defense right now, uh, there's a lot of question marks. We don't know if they're going to re-sign Olivier Vernon. That guy can make huge cash yeah. uh, as a free agent. Uh, obviously a lot of money tied up in the defensive tackle position with just Indomitian Sue alone. And they got a young guy in Jordan Phillips, which, I mean, I, I like their core inside. I mean, it's kind of a, a guessing game. Cause you got wake Cameron wake and his injury. Uh, I mentioned the Olivier Vernon thing. And then you get to the second level of defense, which is where things really get uh, bad. Cause I don't know how long you were, you were waiting on, uh, on hold, but uh, Lewis mentioned Kelvin Shepard starting at middle linebacker was just an absolute dumpster fire for the Dolphins last year. Just no lack of physicality, no real, you know, you're always looking for that sort of cere- cerebral type leader at the, um, and tackling machine at that, that middle linebacker position. And Kelvin Shepard checks none of those boxes. Uh, just a, a reactive guy that I think that, he had to lead the league in bouncing off of prospective tackles <laughs> this year. I he had to be up there. I've never seen a guy get knocked back so often uh while trying to while trying to make a play on the ball carrier. They have Jelani Jenkins who I like his skill set as a weak side guy. I always mention that he flows to the ball really well. I like the way he pursues. He's not really someone who's gonna go ahead and show you anything as a blitzer. I mean he can. I mean I we have seen him collect sacks before. But I mean, if you're if you're expecting him to get off blocks and really penetrate consistently, I think you're probably wasting your time. And then you, they also had Koamisi in there, which you know played essentially defensive end at Utah and has gone from U, uh, defensive end to outside linebacker to inside linebacker with Miami. Good tackler, but not really a guy who's going to make plays in space. He's really going to set a, a physical tone, even though I mean he's a bigger guy and like he can. He can thump from time to time. But the real issue, well, actually, linebacker is the real issue. And then you get to the secondary where you've got Brent Grimes, who's going to be 33. Jamar Taylor hasn't done anything. Uh, they've got a sort of project guy in Tony Lippett, who is a receiver at Michigan State. I mean, just a real – he's kind of – I mean, I hate this comparison, but he kind of has the same build as like a, a Brandon Browner type, you know, just that insanely long corner. Type. So too. I remember him coming out, and I thought the same thing. If he makes that transition, I think he hey, he did a few snaps in the Senior Bowl at, at defensive at defensive back, and his ball skills stood out instantly. Yeah, and I mean things get better for for the Dolphins uh, at safety because they've got Rashad Jones, and then I mean they've had a pretty much a revolving door at free safety. So I mean like they've got some youngsters in there. Uh, you know, Louis Delmas can never stay healthy. I mean, you feel terrible for the guy, even though it's kind of been the story of his career since he came in the league in 2009. So, I mean, if you're Vance Joseph, your plate is full because you have holes to fill uh, at at least two levels and perhaps three, depending on what happens in free agency. So 
So, I mean, like the only thing you really worry about with Vance Joseph is that's just a lot to throw at a guy who you mentioned goes from a position coach to controlling the whole enchilada on the defensive side of the ball. Yeah, definitely. And if they can get Lamar Miller back on offense, then you're probably set on most positions on offense. Maybe you can put some resources, especially in the draft, if two out of your first three picks are on defense. Maybe you get a linebacker in the first round. Maybe it's a corner. Maybe you sign a safety in free agency. Then maybe it's not so bad. One thing to think of, I think, when you're building this defense, and I think Vance Joseph looks at it the same way because the Bengals do, and I I think that's something they've really instilled uh, when they're looking at players. They build looking at the nickel defense as their starting defense. So you're thinking two two linebackers, three corners. I mean, that's how they start. So there's Sam linebacker. They really are considering him as a sub-package player. Their nose tackle a lot of time as a sub-package player. They play with three defensive line, three defensive ends and one defensive tackle usually uh, on the defensive line. So if you look at it that way, maybe the holes aren't as bad. It depends on how you feel about your your nickel corner. But Leanne Hall is a free agent also for the Bengals. I don't think he'll be too expensive. I think he's still one of the best nickel slot corners in the NFL. Maybe you I'd bring agree. him. Maybe you bring Reggie Nelson. You know, you grab, you bring one of those guys with you, you. You draft a linebacker in the first round. It's not so bad at that point. You like to hear that sub-package thing, too, considering uh, the way that you're able to manipulate the talent in there. And the interesting thing is, I think you said two defensive ends, one defensive tackle. Uh, the yeah. Dolphins would be would be golden if it was the other way around, and it was two defensive tackles yeah. and one, one defensive end, almost like a Leo-type setup there, you know, where you can just go ahead and just overload. Because, I mean, if there's one thing the Dolphins have coming out of their ears right now, it's the defensive tackle position. I mean, they've got, they've got obviously, the talent in, in Dominican Sue, which they paid handsomely for. But you've also got the youngster in there, Jordan Phillips, and I'm a big fan of his. Him, I know he came out with some questions uh, out of Oklahoma, and especially health. Really, some people were worried about his back and yeah, whatnot. Back, and right? When you're, yeah. When you're playing at 340 pounds or wherever he was when he was uh, uh, with the Sooners, I mean, that's just that's, I mean, that's a, he, If I can jump in, he dominated sure. at points when he was healthy and when he was going hard, he dominated at points. Yeah, I was a big fan of that addition. I know some people were kind of puzzled bringing in and Dominican Sue and then drafting um, Jordan Phillips. But I mentioned this uh, at the beginning of the show, the fact that Jordan Phillips is that rare guy who's one tech size, just an enormous guy who you almost have to all the time uh, requires a double team, but with a lot of penetrative skills too. I mean, like he is good at getting in the backfield, which is that's rare stuff. You're right. So, I mean, I'm, I liked him. He, he could tell Sue's rubbing off on him, too. I also mentioned that he he had an, a real edge to his game late in the season. He totally drilled Eli Manning on a play that John Gruden wanted him throw out, thrown out of the game of that, that Giants-Dolphins Monday night game. And it was it was not even close to being ejection-worthy. But it was definite definite uh, uh, proof that Sue is, Sue is influencing a lot of these guys. And you hope that you're able to toe the line without you know com- going completely over it. So that's good news on the Vance Joseph front. I got to ask you now because I saw you're starting to put out. Uh, I love the Pokemon thing you're doing with your your linebackers too. By the way, that's that's excellent. <clears throat> I spent a lot of time looking at that at work, which I hope my boss isn't listening. Um, so you're. I noticed uh, you'll get along with Lewis on this one because you gave a really high grade to Miles Jack. It sounds like you're a fan. Yeah, he ended up grading very highly, uh, and if you would be. Was two years ago was the draft with Aaron Donald and Khalil Mack and those defenders that were in the top five on most guys' uh, boards. 
he grades right with them as he should be an elite player very early in his career. And it's mostly because his skill set, and this is something I've ignored for a long time because we used to always think, you know, if a guy gifted, I think we got scared for a while that he was more of an athlete, that if a guy was more of an athlete than a football player, we'd kind of get nervous. But then we see some of these guys that go through the NFL and they dominate. And we look back, and I'm talking Rob Gronkowski, J.J. Watt, and Cam Newton, those type of guys. They're hard to find. And you say, well, what are they so good at sometimes? You watch them on a play, and while they have developed into technical players and just all-around good players, you go, man, they're just physically bigger, stronger, faster, more intense than anybody they come up against. And while Miles Jack isn't necessarily bigger at 6, maybe 1, and 240, uh, he is incredibly athletic and incredibly gifted. He, he, on a dime, on a split second, he can cut. He can explode. And hit. the way he coils up and, and, and generates some power out of that body is very impressive. You don't get to see him do it much. But when you do see him, I think it's the, the Virginia game, you get to actually see him in the box more often and play the run. And I think that's the question because they do so much with him. It's like you want to see – I want to see 100 snaps of him just really playing the run and, and setting the edge or, or attacking downhill. And the Virginia game is one you get the most out of. You probably get 15 or so snaps where you can see him. And he just uncorks on the offensive linemen that are trying to block him in the second level. And he's popping their heads back. He's lifting them off the ground. And you're like, this is a smaller guy. But, you know, a, a, a bullet, you know, going that fast is going to hurt something. And that's the way you feel when you when you watch him play. And you see plays where he he's lined up on the outside, on, on the perimeter covering. He's in the slot covering. He's carrying uh, the tight end up the middle of the field, and he's jogging, it looks like. And he turns and makes a play on the ball. It's rare cover skills. It's rare movement skills. It, it's just he ends up grading high levels in, high, you know, in so many areas that his grade ends up so high overall. And you're like, I can't ignore that. Yes, he may not be like Jalen Smith. And Miles Jack, Jalen Smith might be a better linebacker right now, and even now I'm not so sure about that. But Miles Jack should be 100 times better, 100 times more versatile in what you can do with him, where you can move him around, the things you can do. He can end up being one of the guys where, like, man, he changes what we do on defense. He changes the game. Teams are going to start looking for Miles Jack, and they're not going to find him. It's going to be the same thing, like I said, with Gronkowski, J.J. Watt, Cam Newton. You're not going to find those guys. These guys are rare. They're, you get them when you can. I think if there's any chance he makes it. And that's the thing. It's these linebackers, because of their size, because they're not pass rushers, they normally go 10 to 20. Even though Jack is, is graded as high as he is, it's the same as like Aaron Donald. He, the smaller size, teams get scared of them because they pigeonhole into a certain position or a certain role. They might say he's only a weak side linebacker. They may say he's only a nickel linebacker, but he'll outgrow that instantly or, or very quickly. And I can see him going in that 10 to 20 range. You've got Lewis salivating like Pavlov's dogs right now, I'm sure, just listening to that. Although, that, I mean, you sold him to me, too. I mean, I love hearing that kind of stuff. I'm I'm a big fan of his. I'm still uh, in that that mode where I'm just like, do I want a corner? Do I want a linebacker? But if you're looking at the best talent on the board, your best player available, it's pretty much a no-brainer at number eight. Yeah. That if that, that guy's available, you got to do it. Exactly. I think a few teams are going to have to pass on him knowing he's their highest-graded player. But – the position value and maybe the size they might they may look away from and draft somebody else. Well, if that's the case, then it's a blessing that San Francisco is having quarterback woes right now because I suspected they could have been one of those teams. Uh, I think I mean Baltimore's already got C.J. Mosley. Although I mean you can go yep. ahead and throw Miles as you mentioned, Miles Jack can go anywhere. Yep. Uh, 
So, I mean, I, I hope that uh, Jacksonville stays away. I don't know. Uh, we were talking about Jalen Ramsey being number one on Dallas's board, which a, a lot of people would call that a smoke screen. I don't think so at all. That guy reeks of Dallas Cowboys football. For sure. So, and, and uh, so if you're the Dolphins, you're just hoping some of these guys, you're hoping another quarterback manages at least two go in that top seven. And yep. if, if you get Dolphin wants to go, then you're probably good. Yeah. I mean, he's, he's excellent. Um, UCLA linebackers making a real comeback, and I like that. I like that yeah. uh, that school in Love terms of defensive last year too. Yeah, he's a guy that um, a lot of us were talking about. If we could, if we could trade down to the end of the first, we totally would have taken yep. him. Uh, and similar, I mean, not near the level of suddenness or just overall burst. Because I mean, you met, you mentioned Miles Jack just explodes out of his stance. Yeah, I mean, he just he goes and Eric Hendricks also a really fast, fluid player, just not on that level. But in terms of pursuit, just excellent. And, you know. Oh, yeah. Pursuit, anticipation, vision. You know, his eyes were locked on the ball carrier. He just knew where the play was going every time. His flow to the ball was exactly what you would want. Yeah, anytime you can get uh, a player with that level of athletic skills and they have the the fundamentals uh, mentally to match, I'm all about that. If you can get those guys who are just real sound football players. And I think that Minnesota absolutely got a deal with that guy so sometimes sometimes you're fortunate so uh we'll go ahead to the other linebacker i saw and you have a and this interested me but i have to say that when you watch the tape uh it's you you cannot deny anything that's coming out about reggie raglan and the fact that i mean he had a very good defensive line in front of him you had a i wouldn't say a mediocre grade you had a decent grade for reggie raglan but So if you want to go ahead and talk a little more about that, I thought your analysis on that was, was interesting and on point. Yeah, well, and if you you know me, I don't watch much college football throughout the year. Uh, if I catch a Saturday game, I will, but I devote so much time the Sunday to NFL football that I don't try to, you know, carve out my schedule on Saturdays either. So I don't go with the ups and downs. A lot of times I don't know who these guys are. I don't know what the what their team record was. So I don't know if that puts me at advantage. Some people says it gives me an advantage because I don't ride the wave of hype. But I watch Reggie Raglan. And maybe it's because I watched him after. There's a lot of athletic linebackers this year. So I put on Reggie Ragland, and I'm like, okay. I see what he's listed at. I see his size. I start looking up his credentials as I'm watching him. I'm like, oh, wow, this guy's highly productive. He's a good player, man, and they won the national championship. Okay, this guy's he's going to be pretty good, but he's another. You know, he's, in that, he's probably in that Alabama mold, the Dante Hightower, the Rolando McLean, C.J. Mosley. He's probably in that, in that range somewhere. So I'm watching and, uh, you know, he's going through the motions most of the time. He's making tackles. So I'm like, okay, I'm looking for something. I'm looking for an impact play. He he puts his hand in the dirt. He gets to rush a little bit. He's not very good at it, but he can offer it. if he's one, But I, I made the point. Someone said, well, I think he can rush, you know, on, on nickel for you. And my point was, uh, if he's one of your best two edge rushers, you probably need to draft an edge rusher instead of a linebacker in the first round. But I get to Raglan, and I'm like, um, He's probably an average, maybe a below-average athlete. He's not really quick twitch, doesn't have the sideline speed, uh, and he doesn't play with high intensity. Sure, he's a tough, hard-nosed middle linebacker, but he's not. I'm watching him after Jack, who who is high intensity. I watch Antonio Morrison in Florida, high intensity, and I'm going through these guys, and I'm like, hmm, they're just he's just going through the motion on a lot of these plays and playing his position, which is great. You'd love that for your middle linebacker. But I don't think he's dynamic enough. I don't think he's playing 
uh, on your nickel defense. I think he's a, a solid run-defending middle linebacker that's a short tackler. He's not going to shoot gaps. He's not going to get a lot of plays behind the line of scrimmage. He's not going to – I don't think he's as powerful as Dante Hightower. I don't think he's as good in coverage as C.J. Mosley. And Rolanda McClain, while he had a lot of – probably the most gifted one out of all those – but mentally he wasn't all there. So I don't think he's Rolando McClain either. I'm looking at him and I go, you know what he reminds me of is Kevin Minter from LSU a couple of years ago who went to the Arizona Cardinals, who's in the second round, uh, who's just been kind of a black guy. And that's how I felt with Reggie Ragland. I kind of felt bad as I'm watching him. I'm like, well, I think a lot of people like him. I don't want to be just, a, you know, contrary to the popular opinion here, but you just don't – what are you getting with him? This is what we know we're getting. He's an easy evaluation – and because he's from Alabama, you probably feel comfortable with that evaluation. And I think a lot of teams end up doing this. You know what you're getting. You're getting a smart guy. You're getting a good, good tackler. You're getting a willing run defender. But you're not getting an aggressive run defender. You're not getting a power run defender. If you want a middle linebacker that's just going to be a run get, run defender, don't you want somebody who's physically imposing, at least with strength-wise, a guy who can defeat blocks better than Raglan can? Because you see Raglan, he only probably faces a, a, a blocker in the second level a handful of times a game, and he loses those usually. He's usually kept clean by the Alabama defensive line, and that's when he can roam around and make tackles. It's not going to be the same thing in the NFL for him. He's going to face blockers much more often, and I feel like he's going to struggle because he's not a great athlete, he's not over-physical, and he's not over-aggressive. I just think he's probably an average starting linebacker, and that's not something I want to spend a first-round pick on. Yeah, especially a number eight pick. Um, yeah. I want to bring you on another time when you've watched all the corners so we can go ahead and compare notes here because um, the popular guy around a lot of Dolphins fans, it's kind of a split thing right now. You, you got the Vernon Hargraves camp, you've got the McKenzie Alexander camp. And I mean, there's a lot to like about both guys. I mean, if you're, if you're looking for the better pure athlete, you're likely going to go with McKenzie Alexander. But if you're, if you're looking at the actual position, you're looking at what they bring to the position in terms of, of polish, flexibility, uh, just overall skill set, and as you mentioned, intensity. I think a lot of people are into the idea of Hargrave. So once you look at those guys, I'd like to bring you back on. Um, yeah, for sure, we should do that. I haven't gotten to the corners yet. I only just saw Hargra- Hargraves while I was watching Antonio Morrison the other day. He was impressive, just some flashes. But you know, obviously, you have to watch those guys snap after snap to get a good feeling for them. I like Antonio Morrison too. Um, we got a couple of minutes left with you before we'll let you go. Um, we'll do a sort of lightning round where I'm just going to ask you questions. You can just give me short, shortish answers, just uh, okay. your take on, on certain things. I'm just curious because I mean, I haven't talked to you in a while, so I'm always interested to hear what you say about certain things. Um, Marvin Lewis is pretty much a Teflon Don, it seems like at this point. At what point is that guy actually in jeopardy of losing his job? Or do you think that it's it's right that he remains in that not – quite untouchable um, status, but I mean, he's clearly has the trust of uh, Bengals front office management. Yeah, it's kind of a weird situation. He was in danger twice, I probably think, maybe two times in his 13, 14 years with the Bengals, and it was each time after they gone through like a 4-12 and year where they just needed a complete rebuild. I think it would take another one of those, but at the same time, Mike Brown is kind of the owner is giving up control right now. He's giving it to his daughter. He actually has a GM kind of right now. Marvin Lewis is, is the personnel guy and the head coach. So while he's giving it up, I don't think he wants to let go of 
his central figure in Marvin Lewis right now. So he may have a little little bit longer of a leash. And one other thing is they keep losing head coaching candidates. And right now I'm not sure if there's one on, on the team that's that's in line to take over for Lewis. They talked to Hugh Jackson this offseason and said, hey, listen, if you don't take this Browns job, you're probably our head coach if Marvin Lewis can't get it done this next year. Well, now you don't have that fallback option, so does Lewis get an extra leash now? Does he get two more years, three more years, if they keep making the playoffs and going one and done? I, I think that's probably the situation they're in. And Paul Gunther would be the next guy at this point, right? It, yeah, it, it seems like he would be. Uh, he's a relatively unknown, but he's grown up through the Bengals system, so I think that's why they would like him. He started off as a quality control coach and assistant. I mean, he was the guy where I believe Taylor Mays was, was struggling transitioning to linebacker, and at the time, Gunther was just an assistant linebacker's coach. And the story is they t- he took him into the hotel and said, we need to start you tomorrow. It was an away game. They went into, like, the banquet hall and set up chairs, uh, you know, representing each player on the defense. And, and Taylor Mays was working with them to learn, you know, the, the small package of plays they had for him to, so that they could use them the next day. And from there, he's grown into their defensive coordinator, and they really like him. Just, I mean, total shot in the dark. I guess on your part, who would you say is the number one overall pick in April's draft? Oh man. I want to say I, it seems like it was Joey Bosa for the whole season where it's like, man, he's the best player in in college football. I think some people have kind of soured on him. You know, sometimes when you stay at the top, we start to nitpick them after a while. Uh, I still think one of these quarterbacks could somehow get in there. You know, we still got the combine. We still have the interview process, which is huge for quarterbacks, you know, for these guys to, to come to the team, visit with the team, go on the whiteboard, draw things up for them, really dig into the playbook and regurgitate it next time they meet with these next time they meet with these teams. If any of these teams believe one of those guys is a franchise guy, they either take him at one, they trade up to one. I could see that scenario happening. We've seen guys get overdrafted at number one plenty of times, quarterback. I think that could happen again. Say the Titans stay at that spot, though. Do you think this could be a year where someone trades up to number one? Because you got number two is pretty much a lock that the Browns are going to take a quarterback. Hugh Jackson has indicated indicated as much. So you think this is a year where somebody springs into number one to get their guy before Cleveland can? Exactly. That's what I alluded to. I think you laid out the exact scenario with the Browns. It's pretty sure I feel like they're going to take a quarterback. They're you know, I think they want Jared Goff if they can. Uh, so if any of these other teams that follow really want him, the Titans can, you know, name their price. And if you really want that guy, you're going to have to pay for it. And I think this probably is that year. And especially when there's, you know, you can drop if you're the Titans. If you're going back to three, four, five, six, I think you can still get a pretty good player at that position. I, I think you're probably four, five, six deep with elite talent in this year's draft. So, I, you know, as long as they're open and their options are open, they can – fall back somewhere into in there and still get a really good guy. And last, uh, your way too early pick for the winner of Super Bowl 51. Oh, geez. Hmm. I think the Panthers and should be much better next year. If they get their receivers back, uh, the defense should be just as good as it was this year. Um, yeah, I would say the Panthers. Why not? Yeah. So I, I think my, my dark horse in the NFC right now, and I mean, like, there's so much that can happen, but the, the team that defensively wowed me the most in terms of upside uh, and just how far along they are is Minnesota. The only problem yeah. is that Minnesota is going back indoors 
next year. And I think that's a huge advantage when they get, you saw Seattle looked absolutely terrible out outside in, in Minneapolis, St. Paul, when they played that game, nobody wants to go up there in January and play when it's like negative 10 out. Yeah. Especially the way they're built, they're built to run it. Their, their defense is getting pretty good. And that's, you want to play outdoors. You want to, you're in favor of chaos. You're in favor of offenses being able to shut themselves down just because of the weather. If you're the Vikings, uh, and you bring them back indoors, maybe that helps Teddy Bridgewater. We know how important it is to play well. You'll go as far as your quarterback plays, you know, until this year, I, you know, we really still have some good defense to carry some crap quarterbacks, but I still believe if you get good play out of your quarterback, you're, they'll be much better as a team overall, if they can get Bridgewater to be what we think he can be. He's Joe Goodberry. He's a NFL draft writer. Do you still cover the Bengals, or are you purely a draft guy at this point? No, I still do cover the Bengals. I cover them up until January, wild card weekend, until they shit the bed again, and then I go on to draft. (laughs) It's always a pleasure to hear from you. Uh, I really want to have you back on when you're able to look at the corners, and we can go ahead and and swap notes on that. So until then, uh, thanks for coming on our show, and I uh, hope to hear from you soon. Yeah, thanks for having me, guys. All right, no problem. Take care. Yep, bye. All right, I like the insight there. I always love hearing from him in terms of draft stuff. I He always has a pretty uh, innovative way of getting his point across. I know I mentioned today that he had Pokemon cards uh, set up, designed as these, uh, these linebacker prospects in the uh, 2016 NFL draft, and I thought that was pretty cool. We'll go right to our next guest. Uh, we're going to go to uh, ESPN Radio 93.5 Champagne's Michael Carpenter. You're becoming a frequent contributor to this show, sir. <laughs> well, it's good to be back on. I had a lot of fun last time, so uh, I'm, I'm happy to come on whenever. I got a lot of positive feedback about that that mini Peyton Manning rant that you had last week, so I couldn't <laughs> say no to another opportunity. Well, there may be another one down, uh, coming down the pike tonight. Uh, we'll, we'll see where the conversation leads us. I was going to say, we'll we'll just talk. Nothing has to be in a vacuum here. We'll just we'll just see where the discussion takes us. We'll start with um, so, well, we'll start with the actual game, Super Bowl Fifty. What did you think of the actual game? Because it's unfortunate that a really impressive defensive battle between two teams uh, has almost been overshadowed by all the the shenanigans that took place immediately afterward and have carried over into the um, much of this week. You know, I, I find it interesting that Cam Newton is so divisive, um, and, and we'll get into that later. But as far as the game is concerned, and it is unfortunate that it's kind of being overshadowed by all the hijinks afterwards, which really are kind of non-stories. The game itself, yes, if you're into defense, that was the kind of game for you because you saw even Cam Newton, an MVP caliber player, just look – merely a mere mortal out there against that Denver defense, which all year long was fantastic. Uh, But I guess maybe as a Bears fan, my image of how good Denver was, was kind of skewed because if the Bears would have just kicked a couple field goals in November, they would have beat them. And I know that was Brock Osweiler, but, you know, he was, in all honesty, just as good as Peyton Manning was this year. Um, But I kept waiting for the moment. Every every good Super Bowl has that uh, you know signature moment that you look back on and say, oh right, well that was the uh, 
David Tyree's catch against the Patriots, for instance. Uh, there was no real moment, I felt like, in this game. There was the fumble recovery in the end zone by Denver, and that kind of signaled, wait a second, they, they could win this thing. Uh, but other than that, there wasn't anything that I think we'll be looking back on even, uh, you know, two, three years from now and say, oh, Super Bowl 50, you remember that? Um, it, it felt uneventful and, and kind of anticlimactic despite the fact it was a big upset. I thought the uh, the Super Bowl halftime show sucked. And I, I love that you brought up uh, David Tyree. Uh, we love David Tyree around here. I'm still convinced that that helmet catch was powered by the 72 Dolphins. Absolutely. It may have been. You know, there might there might be something to that because did he was he even in the league the next year? I think he made it one more year and then yeah, he was he was out to the point where uh the next time they went to the Super Bowl and they were playing the Patriots, it was almost like they were trolling New England by bringing David Tyree out to stand on their sideline. Yeah. Well, and it's it's kind of funny too how the Super Bowl will on occasion give you that random guy, for instance, uh, I think it was Kelvin Hayden that had the interception return against the Bears in 2007, and then yes. they were doing the they were doing the MVP stuff. Uh, all the former Super Bowl MVPs before Super Bowl 50, and I kept waiting. I, I told the people I was watching with, "Hey, just wait. You know, you got all these classic guys, Joe Namath and and uh, Staubach and all that. Well, just wait until Dexter Jackson takes the field and the crowd goes nuts." <laughs> And sure enough, yep, Dexter Jackson from that Buccaneers-Raiders Super Bowl came out. And, uh, yeah, on occasion, the Super Bowl will give you that. But uh, that the one thing you will remember, Von Miller just made himself a lot of money. And he, he did that throughout the season anyways. But that guy's a superstar. And I'm trying to think best pass rusher since. And you can go a ways back, I feel like, with that with that discussion because he is on another level right now. I thought I was watching Lawrence Taylor wear a Broncos jersey during that game. That yeah. guy was just an absolute, just a sledgehammer, just a one man. Mm-hmm. And not, I, I won't call him a one man wrecking crew because they had so much production from Demarcus Ware and their defensive tackles were good. Uh, their linebackers the were outstanding. Yeah, the, the ageless Demarcus Ware all year long. He was terrific and and a great, uh, you know, just added a lot of good balance on that line because you know if that were just a a middling defensive line. Von Miller would get his, but he would not get his to the level that he was getting this year. But every time that Carolina snapped the ball, it was just insane. It felt like it felt like every drop back for Cam was shortened by at least a full second because of what Von Miller was doing. And how crummy is it? Well, crummy for everyone else that Denver's in a position now where if you franchise the guy, you're going to have teams lining up saying, like, we'll throw down two first-round picks for him. We don't care. Yeah. And he's worth – when you look at the formula to win a Super Bowl, because it seems like it it always kind of changes. It's very malleable depending on the season and the teams that are in the Super Bowl. But more often than not, when you go back to the Giants teams that beat the Patriots in those upsets, the pass rush, for the most part – always wins. And uh, I, I hate to keep relating it to the Bears, but go back to 2007, and when Tommy Harris went down, um, yeah. before I could even reach the playoffs, that you knew, oh, man, that, well, yeah, they made the Super Bowl, but if Tommy Harris was there, maybe it's different. You know, maybe Tommy Harris in that defensive line gets to Peyton Manning, who wasn't all that spectacular to begin with in that game. And, yeah, pass rush can negate even the best quarterbacks in the league, as we saw with Cam Newton 
looking like Cam Newton from three years ago. Uh, he was reduced to uh, not even a Pro Bowl-level quarterback. He was outright kind of bad uh, during the Super Bowl. And Peyton Manning wasn't very good in that, that Super Bowl 41. Oh. I It upsets people to hear that, but his first touchdown pass to Reggie Wayne was because the coverage fell down. And you mentioned yep. Tommy Harris getting hurt against the Vikings in December that year. Uh, if, if that doesn't, I mean, Tommy Harris at that point in time was the best defensive tackle in the game. I thought he was outstanding. Oh, he was that, that whole year. And you look at certain other guys on that line. I think, I think Mark Anderson made a few plays for that defensive line, but would he have had any impact whatsoever without a Tommy Harris in the middle? Um, Tank Johnson, Alex Brown had an unbelievable season, but again, how much of that could you attribute to, the middle of that line being so good. So, yeah, I, I think if we learned anything and through 50 Super Bowls and especially the last, you know, 10 or so, it really seems, a quarterback can get you to the Super Bowl. Um, but it can always be negated by a pass rush. And in the case of the Broncos, you know, the, the back seven's pretty good. Uh, oh, yeah. I don't think spectacular. But that just goes to show that a good defensive line all of a sudden is, could make a, a run-of-the-mill back seven uh, look pretty good. I mean, it's it's a cliche for football, but it's so true. It all starts up at the front. Peyton Manning stayed relatively clean. They were able to run the ball with C.J. Anderson. And then on the other side of the ball, the defensive line just, just dominated. A, a pretty good Carolina offensive line that maybe with Cam's mobility, there were some weaknesses of theirs that weren't really exposed throughout the year. I, I knew that Wade Phillips' uh, game plan was working when I realized that Greg Olson was nowhere to be found during that yeah, game. Yeah, you're right. Completely I mean, that, that guy, I mean, he's Carolina's safety valve on third down. I mean, just an absolute chain mover in that regard. And when Cam Newton was repeatedly looking for Ted Ginn downfield, I kind of figured that Denver had them right where they wanted them. Yeah, absolutely, because Cam's strength, and, and he was – a, you could even say a great passer this year. He really was. Uh, he was. But you're right. That was the safety valve was, was uh, Greg Olson, uh, who had a terrific year. And for an offense that really didn't have a ton of proven commodities at wide receiver, I, I would have been anxious to see if Kelvin Benjamin drops and all, you know, but a, still a really stellar rookie season. It, you know, the difference that that would have made. But, you know, they weren't a 15-1 and team for nothing. And the way that they won those first two games – there was a reason the Vegas said five and a half, six point favorites, which is almost unheard of in a Super Bowl. That's that's a large spread when you have the NFC and AFC champions in there. So um, it, it felt, you know, to be honest, it, it almost felt going into that game like it was too easy of a pick to make. That that it, I felt so confident that Carolina was going to win that game and win it decisively. That you know, in hindsight, probably kind of foolish of me to. Um, think that this was just going to be a repeat of the Ravens-Giants Super Bowl in 2000, something like that, where one team was just outright better than the other. And I think if those two teams played ten times, I still think Carolina would win, you know, probably six, to be honest. But um, it just happened to be one of those other four games where Cam Newton was uh, just not, not himself. That Super Bowl 35 was one of a, a couple that was – powered by the fact that it was a crappy game uh, because the superior Vikings team lost in the NFC championship. 
Yeah. And that year, that year they went to the Meadowlands and they were just absolutely, it's like they didn't even show up. I remember that was just a horrific beating. And that 2000 Vikings team, I mean, had Dante Culpepper and Randy Moss, and that team was just rolling along. And then it was turned that Culpepper, into... or was that the was Warren Moon back in '98? No, Cunningham was in '98. Randall Cunningham had that team in '98. Oh, Warren that's... Moon was with them in '94. I'll never forget that sweet, sweet mustache. Oh, absolutely! And I remember yeah. that game in 2002 because. Uh... I feel like that was the day, yeah, my sister was moving back into the dorms here, and so I, as we're helping it, that game is on, and everyone expected Minnesota just run it, uh, just absolutely run run the Giants that day, and that's the problem with upsets. And you can see it in the NCAA tournament as well. A Cinderella story is only cute until the Sweet 16. You don't really want them to advance more than that because eventually uh, you are what you are. And They're going to get pummeled. In this case, yeah, absolutely. And uh, in this case, that's why, it, you know, for a, team, for a game that had a really good amount of star power, if we're talking about a Denver Broncos team that had Peyton Manning circa even three years ago, even two years ago, I, I think the intrigue goes up. But because we always, I think, and it's only natural for football fans or casual viewers of the game, to want to hitch their wagon to a quarterback's play, there wasn't any of that. You know, there was no quarterback play that made you say, oh, man, these, you know, these Peyton Manning versus Cam Newton. No, it had nothing to do with Peyton Manning versus Cam Newton. It was uh, a, a really good defense, um, and that that's not always as sexy, and, and I hate doing that as someone that loves good defenses, but it it just seemed uneventful to me. You mentioned Cam Newton. We'll just get right into it. Uh, are people blowing his postgame antics and – the the whole follow up are they blowing that out of proportion or is it insight into an athlete who can certainly dole it out but isn't very good at taking it? The, I, I'm conflicted because I felt like the entire season there was a lot of unfair criticism of Cam Newton and as for what it's rooted in, I don't know. I mean, could it be that there's a discomfort that there's this swaggering black guy that really kind of has a, I don't give a crap attitude um, and is at at this point the best player in the NFL. I would say at least in 2015, best player in the NFL. He'll win the sure. MVP, no problem. Um, so I, I, I don't know. Like it, it was disappointing to me that he handled that press conference the way he did because it was so, so easy. It was fuel, fuel to the fire for all the people that really didn't have a lot to work with throughout the year. Uh, apart from, oh, he dances after touchdowns, which it's entertainment. You know, people throw out the word, the word classy a lot, which I feel is like the last resort for someone that really has no other argument. Oh, well, he's not a classy player. I mean, you know, well, okay, Pitt Manning's classy, but he's boring, you know, and, and this is entertainment. These are professional athletes. So for me, Cam, if you want to call him an anti-hero, uh, which I think for a lot of people he is, he's a breath of fresh air. And that's why it was disappointing that, you know, it would have been so great to shove it in the faces of Cam haters if he comes out and graciously is talking about it. And it would have been the one time where I would have wanted Cam to go buy the book and do what other quarterbacks do when they lose the Super Bowl. Well, you know, we just didn't play our best game today. I, don't, I wouldn't have cared how cliche it would have been. Instead, 
it turned into something far larger than it was, when in actuality he may very well have been hearing what Chris Harris was saying behind that partition about how, well, you know, we, we dominated them. And I'm sorry, after you lose a Super Bowl, that's not something you want to hear. And he was getting asked the same questions. I, I understand the media can get a bit redundant. So it was general frustration. I still wish he would have handled it better, but it's still blown out of proportion. It's really, really irrelevant. And uh, it kind of cast a uh, – just. It, it, it was just an unnecessary side story when really we should be focusing on, damn, like Denver's defense was, I don't want to say maybe historically good, but as far as Super Bowl performances go, it was up there. I was going to ask that. How do they stack up against the all-time greats? This whole thing about how they're right there, they're not the 85 Bears. They're not the 2000 yeah. Ravens. They're not the 76 Steelers. But – I mean, in the in the modern era, is this the best defense we've seen? Oh, man, that's a great question. I mean, you look at the Giants' defenses in the Super Bowl, not necessarily great defenses, but a pass rush was just the the antidote to Tom Brady, who's not a mobile quarterback. So it just was a great matchup in those two Super Bowls. I'm trying to think of other great defenses that have been in the Super Bowl. I mean, I, I would love to see the Seahawks of two years ago against the Broncos of this year. And that's kind of weird to say because you look at the Broncos two years ago that were in the Super Bowl against that very Seahawks team with a Peyton Manning that had a great regular season, and they got bum-rushed. But uh, two years on a defense can make a world of difference. And I can relate it back to the Bears and the transformation they went through with Lovey, those, and Lovey and Ron Rivera those first three years from a 5-win to an 11-win to a 13-win team and how that defense, each and every year, they were pretty good Lovey's first year. They were great the second year. And they were historically great that third year as far as takeaways. So, you know, a matter of two years for a defense that has a lot of young guys to begin with can make a world of difference. And I think that you could maybe put this Denver defense just a notch below that Seattle defense two years ago. But you know what? I'd have to look at the stats and see. Maybe it's comparable um, and, and a lot closer than I think. Uh, it just – the Seahawks had a lot more personality, it felt like, and they adopted that Legion of Doom kind of thing, the Legion of Boom thing. Um, Denver didn't have that catchy, you know, nickname for the defense or anything like that, so they were just in actuality a great defense with, without a lot of fanfare. They should call it Orange Crush, too. I should go ahead and copyright that. Uh, yeah, since, uh, that's fine. they've already – They've already done Orange or, Crush. We can call it Orange Crush 2 Electric Boogaloo. Yeah. <laughs> I'm all in on that. I can already see yeah. the money pile, piling in for that. Uh, I think the, the fundamental difference between the Seahawks defense of a couple of years ago and uh, this current Denver Broncos defense is exactly what you mentioned in that there was a great secondary in Seattle, that, that Legion of Boom, just an enormous, physical, ruthless, uh, secondary. And then I, I wouldn't call it a gimmick, but they had like Leo rushers. They had a lot of big bodies up front who were able, they were really good at overloading one side of the defensive line. And they had great linebackers. Bobby Wagner was, is an yeah. excellent linebacker. Malcolm Smith, just, I mean, not really one of the better guys on that team completely cleaned up in that game. Dude, Peyton Manning couldn't stop throwing the ball to him, you know? And then you look at Denver and you mentioned Denver's, Back half, good. I mean, the rangy linebackers, uh, Chris Harris, one of the the faster uh, 
corners in the game. Uh, TJ Ward, I think, is an is an underrated guy at safety. I think Darian, Darian Stewart is an excellent player at safety. But you've got that that sort of Wade Phillips one gap scheme one gap scheme that they employ, where you've got a defensive line that's very good at penetrating. Derek Wolf and Malik Jackson were both excellent in that game. Uh, Demarcus Ware. It's ridiculous to think he's not the best pass rusher on that team, especially when you consider how good he was coming out of Troy and on those Dallas teams. Yeah. But, I mean, Von Miller, uh, I don't want to jump the gun on this, but that was a generational-type performance he had in the playoffs. It it really was. I don't think that's jumping the gun on it. I mean, when a guy looks like he's in a video game – I mean, and you mentioned the Lawrence Taylor thing, and actually during that game I was thinking, you know what this reminds me of? This reminds me of playing Tecmo Super Bowl as the Giants. And when you play Tecmo Super Bowl as the Giants, Lawrence Taylor was, you know, if they actually had the sort of Madden rankings of speed, he was 100. And the next fastest guy in the game was a 92. And it was so, like, it was reason enough to play as the Giants, just like when Madden comes out next year, it'll be reason enough to play as the Broncos, just so every time you're on defense, you control Von Miller because of how much fun it's going to be. Sort of like Mike Vick in 2003 Madden or whatever it was where you just want to be the Falcons because the guy was a video game character. Uh, It's it's a guy that you could have predicted coming out of college was going to be a pro bowler, a pro bowl caliber kind of player, and he's been that. But it it is fun to see the emergence of another superstar um, and – that's why, you know, maybe if we would have shifted the frame, like going into that game, the attention uh, placed on Peyton Manning, will this be the way he goes out? And I understand that. I, I don't begrudge that at all. But, you know, it maybe if it would have been framed as, you know, Von Miller, Cam Newton, which you don't often get the defensive end versus the quarterback. But that really the whole time going in should have been the obvious matchup to watch. And uh, it turns out that was the decisive matchup in the game. Go ahead. I know you got other stuff going on tonight, so we'll uh, get one more question in, and then I'll let you sure. get on your way. Uh, I mentioned uh, Puppy Monkey Baby earlier just because uh, <laughs> it, it upsets a lot of people on this show. Uh, it's genius marketing in that it will haunt your dreams. And yes. even even if you don't want to drink a Mountain Dew Kickstart, you're going to talk about it. And eventually you're going to talk about it to someone who will drink Mountain Dew Kickstarter. So in terms of creating that sort of word of mouth thing, just through sheer horror, uh, not bad. But I have to ask, what was your favorite commercial? What was your least favorite commercial? Well, I got to be honest, you know, and this seems to happen every year. By the time you get to the second half, you kind of tune out on commercials. You figure that's going to front loaded. Um, For me... And then maybe after this, we can talk briefly about the halftime show. Um, the Skittles-Steven Tyler commercial, for some reason, did it for me. That one, but more than that, there was one where it's like an alien ship. I think it was Mexico Avocados, Mexican Avocados. Avocados from Mexico. Yeah, and it was like, a, we believe this is a human torture device in its headphones. And then Scott Bayo, which what you see in commercials a lot is – this random humor. There was, there was about a four or five year period where every commercial was basically a send up of the Simpsons man getting hit in the groin by a football. And it was like, let's just see what kind of like violent um, random acts of violence we can throw at someone in a commercial. Now it seems like the thing is uh, what kind of offbeat random humor can we put in a commercial? And for some reason 
normally it wouldn't work for me, that Family Guy style humor. But the Scott Bayo thing, like, it was already a good commercial. They landed the Scott Bayo joke. I thought Mexican avocados, well done, good commercial, and one that you could see a few more times and, and not get sick of it. That that stuck out to me. I think that uh, it's funny you mentioned uh, the staying power of a lot of these things, and you're right. And uh, I actually listened to a podcast you did with my brother where you were talking about like American dad and family guy humor. And at some point it just becomes repetitive. It, it's almost the randomness, like remember, the randomness becomes redundant. You know, when like South well, Park, you know that the, Oh, go ahead. Sure. Well, well, no. And like in South Park did a send up of that family guy, American dad style humor. And I think they, they hit the nail on the head. And I even have problems with South Park now where I preferred when it was more of a comedy than a satire. And I, I know I'm different than a lot of people on that, but, um, yeah, it, it's when randomness becomes, if you expect randomness, if you are, if you are sort of trained to expect that the joke in this commercial basically going to be offbeat, random, geared towards the hipster community, I guess, I don't know who it's actually geared towards, then, then it loses all impact before you even watch it. So that's why I don't know why the Mexican avocado ad worked for me. In most cases, that kind of humor would not. Um, but it was well done, and I think it had its tongue planted firmly in cheek. It wasn't like, hey, guys, check out our great pop culture references like Scott Bayo. It, it did it in a way that was not very um, – I, I think it was self-aware, and I think that you know, good ads or good comedy, for that matter, needs to have that. Hello. Yeah, can you hear me? Yeah, suddenly everything just went quiet. Oh, um, that's he, weird. I guess he well, dropped well, out or something. I don't know. Oh, okay, okay, yeah. Okay, so about... what's that? Yeah, I, I was. I heard everything you said. I mean, and uh, oh, 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 okay. Yeah, I'm, I've I've been here. It's just that Keith is doing such a good job. Uh, so. <laughs> Although I would disagree that self-awareness is like the only way to do comedy nowadays. I think in certain media, I think self-awareness can kill a franchise, but that's just me. For do you have an example? Because I think I know what what you may be referring to. But is there a, a recent example? Um, well, it it depends on. Uh, okay, I'm gonna probably expose myself as a little bit of a nerd here, but okay. the Sonic the Hedge the Sonic the Hedgehog franchise has recently gone into this whole self-aware thing, and I think it's pretty much killed it. Hmm, okay. I I yeah. noticed on I actually just watched an episode of uh It's Always Sunny last night and I absolutely love that show, but like any show, the longer it goes on, you're going to get some it's going to be more hit and miss. And uh, I felt the same way too that that all too often there's it's too self-referential and uh it can be detrimental if it's done too much. Um so yeah, I would agree, but for these one-off 30-second ads you can get away yeah. with it um, for something that is a longer drawn out, whether it be a, a franchise or a of any kind, a comedy series or a film series. Yeah, eventually that it stops being cute and it basically becomes one big long pat on the back. You know. Yeah, that that I can agree with the thirty second thing, but at some point, 
like um, just just for the example of just to keep my example of Sonic to try and give some kind of clarity to what I mean. For a long time, Sonic's world was taken seriously. You, um, he, it took itself seriously. It understood what was going on. It, he, they had a world. They lived in it. They did the thing, and they could make stories out of it. But now it's all about, ha ha, look how dumb we were to take it seriously. Ha ha, look at how crazy we are. Ha ha, this, and it's like, yeah, you're not making great stories anymore. You're just kind of trying to make everybody feel like you're look how smart you are now that you know that how dumb you were. Terrific. Right. Yeah. And to make another somewhat nerd reference here, um, like the most recent Star Wars, Episode 7, totally mm-hmm. self-aware, totally self-referential. And if it's only in The Force Awakens, hey, that's cool. You wanted to reboot things, no problem. If you see that in Episode 8 and Episode 9, ugh, then then it gets a little worrisome. But as long as it's a one-off, no big deal, a lot of fun, and we can uh, you know, hope that it progresses. And I think that can be said for um, anything like that. But, yeah. That's a good point. I do have a question for you, though. You you sure. said that uh, Keith brought up the apparent the apparent pros of uh, Puppy Monkey Baby, right? <laughs> now uh, I want to know what your initial reaction was because mine was just like blank stare. What the crap am I watching? Thing, and that's the, I just have no idea. I my brain went dead at that point. It. It didn't bother me as much. I could tell just being on Twitter during the game and stuff. It bothered people. Like, it, it annoyed the hell out of them. Uh, I didn't have that reaction. I thought, oh, it's a stupid commercial. Uh, puppy, monkey, baby, puppy. Like, you know, the, the way that the repetition of it, that's advertising 101, just boom, hit people over the head with it. And as referenced earlier, uh, you know, even if people hate it, they will always remember Puppy, Monkey, Baby. So mission accomplished. Um, it'll, it's a, a good way, way to. I was gonna say it's a good way to get uh, people to think Mountain Dew is laced with drugs. I think that would that's if that's what they were going for. Well, yeah, they're going for a Mountain Dew that's even more highly caffeinated with taurine and guarine and all the crap that they put in Red Bull. So, which <laughs> sounds like an awful drink to me. Um, but if that, they were going for this super hyper caffeinated version, in my mind, of the Bud. Why is there commercial? Where that was just, you know, and really I don't know if there's a ton of difference. I think it's the same idea that here is kind of a nonsensical commercial for, um, and in this case not an American traditional product like Budweiser, but for, okay, Mountain Dew, that's uh, people are comfortable with that, but this is a more extreme version. And, uh, yeah, it didn't it didn't bother me. It, it, it's stupid. I, I found it relatively harmless, and... You know, puppy monkey baby dancing around. I mean, whatever. It's it's not it's not exactly highbrow, but um, I, I don't expect that for Super Bowl ads. I wanted to know why they had the door on in that that bro apartment that they were living in. Yeah, the, you had those guys sitting there, and all of a sudden, that thing just—it's like that thing doesn't pay rent, and it has its own like little <laughs> dog, doggy door that it just walked through. So I've, I've had nightmares big, start like that. Well, it has a constant supply of Mountain Dew Kickstarter, so why wouldn't they have a door? Well, I don't, I, yeah, it's got its own bucket on. I don't know what I missed. I don't know why the program kicked me out. I was like, oh, it took the whole show with it. Then I was like, no, it just took me with it. Uh, I will so, say this. When it, when it comes to these ads, the only ones that truly bother me are the progressive ads with Flo, who's not funny and never was funny, but she's still there yeah. six, seven years later. 
Um, and then there's a new one. I think it's AT&T. And they go to a phone shop, and there's this, you know, relatively cute girl in her blue AT&T polo. Um, and, you know, people come in and ask her very basic questions, and she always gives them the third degree for no reason whatsoever. And it's this sort of, uh, God, what would you call it? Like, I, I don't want to go back to, like, hipster humor because I, I, I don't know. I, I don't know in there. Yeah, I don't know who the hell they're appealing to, though. But the, the scary thing is that I'm watching it, and uh, there was one time my mom laughed at a Flow commercial. I was like, oh, God damn it. Like, okay, well, I guess that's, that's just out for it. Uh, maybe I'm just out of touch, but it's – for some reason, those the commercials that have a condescending tone piss me off to no end. Like, that, that is – that's the only thing. Puppy Monkey Baby, harmless. Uh, chick of the AT&T store in the blue polo pisses me off. <laughs> and uh, fortunately, I didn't see much condesc- condescension on uh, the Super Bowl ads, and they basically treated us like the dumb public we are. I like the uh, that Amazon one. I'm, I'm of course Dan Marino is in it, so I mean Dolphins fans are gonna are gonna get hip to it really quick. But I thought that it was good until Missy Elliott showed up, and then I was like, this didn't need to happen. <laughs> you could have ended you could have ended this right here, and I yeah. not only would have approved of the commercial, I might have considered buying the product. Yeah, that's a good point. And I, I don't know why during the ad, the meeting, is there all, you know, the meeting of the minds, the ad, ad agency, they're like, you know what, what we're missing, guys, is Missy Elliott. That's, that's what we're missing. We get her in, seal the deal. This commercial is going to be great. I don't see how that's the deal breaker, but for some, apparently they think otherwise. It's like the un- unfunny version of Scott Baio. Like, it's funny when you bring Scott Baio yeah. in, you know, 80s, 80s uh, superstar, Charles in Charge. I don't know if people are old enough to remember Chachi. that show. Uh, yeah, no, Chachi. I remember Charles in He used to play on TBS in the mornings. Yeah, exactly. Mama's, and then Mama's Family, I think. Mama's Family with uh, was that Carol Burnett? I forget. Yeah, it was her character on there. Uh, Vicky yeah, Lawrence, yeah. the one who did did Vicky that. Uh, there we go. Yeah, the chick from Annie. Yeah. Right. Uh, yeah. Oh no. Um, she was uh, she was a the singer, and then I think she was a Carol Burnett. Bit, like a bit player, if you will. I, t- I tend oh, to forget. Oh, she's actually on Carol Burnett's show. Okay. All right. I think that she it was. She, yeah. I think she was a, a player in one of those, in one of those uh, areas. Um, but yeah, Charles in Charge, where he just had the fan, you know, he was the, the live-in nanny for that one family. And then they just mysteriously, yeah. mysteriously moved out overnight. Then he had a new family in there. I always thought that was a weird plot angle. Only in 1986, because you pull that one off. Yeah, and then of course, uh, who's the boss comes out with? Uh, oh, God damn it, Tony Danza and Tony basically Dan. copies the whole premise of Charles in Charge. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and I think those two shows came out right around the same time. I think they both debuted in 1984, if my mind serves uh, serve correctly. So I don't know. I th- I thought some of the the ads were good. I thought some of them were total junk. Um, uh, I forget which car yeah, company. Can I ask had- one question? Yes, please do. Before uh, before we even end this, I want to make sure I get this in. Since we're talking about commercials, what is your take on Old Spice? <laughs> well, well, <laughs> it's kind of kind of that model we're talking about, where they just—it's like the I, the thing I talked about before. It the show dropped me was that that South Park think bubble thing with the porpoises or whatever. And they just pick random stuff that like Old Spice <laughs> take, takes it and just goes to 
the nth degree. Like they just put stuff in there where it's, I just feel like the, the television's yelling at me when I see commercials <laughs> like that. It's just like screaming stuff at me. But the problem is that there's no real information to process. It's all crap. It's not like there's anything useful I can glean from this commercial. It's just that there's Terry Crews. He's incredibly ripped. Uh, I find you him know, funny in you know some movies. With that? My thought is the reason I think those work and other random ads don't is when I watch the Old Spice ads, I gen- genuinely believe that the people that wrote that were super coked out when they did. And then the people <laughs> that write these other random comedy ads – Pretend they they try to go into the mind space of well what would a coke addled ad man ad guy like you know Don Draper style coked out what what would he come up with no you I think you actually have to engage in the substance to come up with something like Old Spice and then it's authentic as long as it's authentically stupid that's fine but it feels like a lot of these others like you said referencing the South Park with the porpoises and the balls of random jokes. Family Guy style. Yeah, you can't do that, but as long as you actually sit in a room and do a bunch of coke, you will come up with good ideas. It's like, well, what is the classic line that Soundgarden had that the most boring rock we ever heard was rock influenced by rock? And I mean, like, you've just got people who want to put out influential weird commercials influenced by weird influential commercials instead of doing their own thing, instead of pulling from other sources of inspiration and like i said i mean old spice takes it to a point where i don't want to use old spice i don't find anything funny about it and if you're if you're wondering what the difference is between old spice and puppy monkey baby puppy monkey baby at least had a hook at least after the commercial ends there's something memorable about it you hate it you don't want to remember it but when you see those old spice commercials i like i challenge anyone to to glean one big takeaway from that commercial. Like, what did you remember? What was the hook? What's the thing that you're going to remember about that commercial? There's too much crap going on. You can't do it. Old Spice makes you smell like power! What else is there? <laughs> yeah, that's pretty much it. Like, exploding people. Uh, I think I think they had, like, the See, Minotaur. I, like I think they're just ridiculous. Like, the Minotaur guy and... The yeah, him I don't like. I just like Terry. I just like Terry. I like when Terry screams at people. That's funny. That's just too much going on. I have a friend who I guarantee loves those commercials and uh, will pretty much let you know as much. He's just like he's also like a Ronda Rousey fan. Now, I'm not lumping Ooh. the two in. I'm not lumping the two in together, but I guess I am. <laughs> that we were. He was at my Super Bowl party, and he was like, "I can't wait until Ronda Rousey uh, gets a." a title rematch because she's going to make it rain. And I was like, look, I actually had the misfortune of seeing that first fight and she was completely outclassed in every sense. That was not a lucky blow. She just got absolutely flat worked. Wait, so, did, did he actually say she's going to make it rain? Yes. Oh God. It, I mean, I'm it, nice Oh, he's great. He's one of, he's one of my best friends, but when it comes to things like that, he was also pulling for the, I was pulling for the Broncos. Not because I don't like Peyton Manning at all, but uh, I like that defense. I actually like Wade Phillips, and if you're a Dolphins fan, you're yeah. hoping that Wade Phillips rubbed off on Vance Joseph, who's the new defensive coordinator in Miami. So I was pulling for them, uh, and I just and I hate John Elway too. I know hate's a strong word, but if you, if anyone did you ever watch the thirty for thirty, the Elway to Marino? 
I have not seen that, but I heard that it's not exactly uh, doesn't shed a positive light on Elway as he came into into the league. It makes him look like a brat. It makes him look like well, he is everyone. I mean, well, he didn't. Yeah, and the, I mean, the funny thing is, his lawyer representation in terms of an agent was the same for Dan Marino, and this guy put it in the Elway's head because I mean, Elway's dad, Jack Elway, was pretty much the Archie Manning of his time. And that he's like, I'm going to go ahead and I'm going to tell you where you can play and you shouldn't play for this team. And this lawyer pretty much uh, creates this fantasy for the Elway family that when I graduated law school, I chose where I got to work. You guys should have that same right. And it's like, no, you can't serve that process. It's there for a reason. Like, you can't allow the rich to get richer. Otherwise, the, I mean, the crummy teams, I mean, sure, they'll screw it up. And it's in hindsight, it was right that he didn't want to play for Baltimore because, I mean, they went to Indianapolis the next year anyway, overnight. But you can't sit there and say you're better, you're too good to go to this team. I mean, that just, that ruins everything. And he had baseball as leverage because, I mean, he was signed by the Yankees. You know, he's drafted by them. He's playing summer ball with them and everything. Steinbrenner, uh, I'm sure you already know this. You're a big Yankees fan. I just yeah. realized that. Yeah. Uh, so you you know the entire story about John Elway. With, uh, yeah, it was basically Drew. like uh, the Drew the Drew Henson saga in, in the 2000s felt like it was going to be something similar, but Drew Henson's not not an asshole. The only difference between John Elway <laughs> and Rocky Dennis from Mask, if you remember Rocky Dennis, is that yeah, John Elway yeah. can throw a football. That's really the only difference. He can throw a football and he wears a suit. And uh, he won a Super Bowl, so he gets to then be an executive in an NFL franchise. Now, he's done a, well, he's done a good job with that. But um, – yeah, he's not uh, an easy guy to root for. That's for sure. You got to have a Steve Garvey. You got to have a Steve Garvey. So, <laughs> I'm glad to get that joke. I always roll. I've been at parties before and I've rolled out the Steve Garvey joke, and people are like, "I don't get it." Like you've never seen Mask, Rocky Dennis, you know, Share. Uh, She's in that movie, Did and everyone's you know, like, "In that movie, the soundtrack." He he loves Bob Seger, right? Right. Like a bunch of Bob Seger tunes in that. And it was going to be Bruce Springsteen, but there was some copyright issue with it. So the, originally the whole thing was written with, okay, well, uh, Bruce Springsteen, uh, like songs from Darkness on the Edge of Town were going to be throughout that whole album, uh, that and the River album, I think. And then they had to, you know, completely go back and uh, insert all these Bob Seger tunes. I think even had to re, uh, overdub uh, Eric Stoltz, who played Rocky Dennis, you know, saying Bob Seger instead of Bruce Springsteen, which fortunately – both Bob Seger, Bruce Springsteen, one starts with B, one starts with S. So, like, the dub over was pretty seamless, but it was this thing that they had to do, like, last week before they released it, something like that. That sucks. Uh, that's kind of – that movie, in a way, is kind of both ridiculous and still an 80s gem, if you will. Yeah. I mean, think about it. I mean, Eric, Eric Stoltz was supposed to be Marty McFly and was when that when production started for that movie, for Back to the Future. Right, yeah. And, and then, then, you know, remember is, uh, there's the blind girlfriend at camp, Laura Dern. Yeah. A young Laura Dern, who then I think a couple years later was in Blue Velvet, the David Lynch movie. And then in 93, before Jurassic Park, she was just doing those kind of uh, a little bit off the beaten path movies. And then all of a sudden, boom, she's the leading actress in Jurassic Park. Yeah, she's acting with, you know, Dennis Hopper in Blue Velvet, where, you know, he's Frank and he's got the the nitrous mask where it's like... <sighs> The whole time, so I love that movie. Uh, oh, that movie! That that movie is ridiculous, and I think that um that movie also kind of gave me the complex to not want to drink Heineken in public. 
So yeah, yeah. Only only Paps Blue Ribbon. Yeah, only Paps Blue That's Ribbon. That's the moral of that movie. If only we could. Uh, I just want to make the. It's it's like uh, Frank in Blue Velvet was Bane before Bane with that. And he just yeah, like put right. that mask on and like, can I get that nitrous mask, please? And he just like goes and on. Honestly, a, he was a hell of a lot more menacing. That that is Dennis Hopper in that movie is one of the most frightening characters in film history. And I'm, I, I wish that more people knew that movie. And I get it, David Lynch. It, it's it can be a bit much. And like Mulholland Drive, I I still don't really know what Mulholland Drive is like. And I love Twin Peaks, the first season, whatever. But uh, if Lost you need Highway. a David Lynch movie, I've never seen Lost Highway. It's a lot to take in. <laughs> it is a okay. lot to take in. It's kind of like, it's one of those movies, it's definitely a movie, and he's really good at it, where you watch it and you're like, is this what everyone else has seen? Like, am I interpreting this correctly? And like, you have like a, a pre-murderer Robert Blake in that movie. Uh, yeah. So on and so forth. I, I know cre- that scene. Yeah, he's creepy in that film too. David yeah. Lynch is just a, a, a master. Oh, that's fine. I was going to say he's a master of just making people feel very uncomfortable around themes where it's not like a, it's not like a horror or a smut movie or, or anything, but you're definitely, you feel dirty after you watch it. It's, it's him and David Cronenberg have a remarkable ability to make you just feel unsettled from the minute the movie starts. Even if the material itself isn't that subversive, you always feel like something really screwed up could happen the next scene. And, uh, yeah, I could do a whole. I, I I think I might like Cronenberg more actually, if I think about it. I like more Cronenberg movies than Lynch movies, but I can definitely appreciate how good Lynch is. This show just became so incredibly highbrow the past ten minutes. I love it. <laughs> Usually we're we're talking about which football players suck and whatnot. Now we're talking about uh, almost uh, avant garde filmmaking, if you will. I know you got to get going. You're supposed to be out about twenty five minutes ago. You stuck around while I was trying to sign back on, so I appreciate that. But um, I'll let, let you go and we can always bring bring you back on. And I love how these conversations just take such a twist. Yeah. Well, let me know when you want to start the David Lynch podcast, or uh, maybe we could even do an Ingmar Bergman podcast and talk about persona and uh, wild strawberries and all those great foreign language films of the fifties. Um, but no, in all honesty, yeah, I appreciate you guys having me and uh, I'm, I'm down anytime. So just let me know. I want to do a music podcast too, similar to something you had going with Alan. I want to bring people yeah, on. We only, if, go ahead. We only did three of those, and it, it, it was a lot of fun. So I, I could talk music. I, I just talked here for, what, 45 minutes? I could do a music podcast, and they'd probably be five hours each. Yeah, it's it's easy to, to go overboard. So we appreciate you coming on, and uh, enjoy the rest of your night, and we'll hopefully hear from you again soon. Sounds good. Thanks, guys. Appreciate it. All right, great. Take care. That was uh, Michael Carpenter, uh, ESPN 93.5, uh, Champagne. He's, he's on the air. I don't know his uh, the time he's on air. I actually feel terrible because I think Dolphin for Life was on uh, the uh, on hold the entire time. Chris, reveal yourself. I'm here. Oh, I'm, <laughs> I had I had no idea, and uh, I had a little bit of board trouble there. I'm I'm on a direct connection now. I don't call in with my phone anymore, which I suspect sounds better, but. Uh, can also create problems if uh, if your system drops. It won't tell you at first. Whereas if I'm if I'm on my phone, it will say as much. So live and learn. But uh, 
we've got a couple of minutes left before we go ahead and call it a night. Uh, what do you want to talk about? Um, basically, I wanted to talk about, because I've noticed on this site a lot, they're talking about we shouldn't sign all these aging veterans and all this other stuff. And, of course, I put on my list of people, you know, the six people I wanted to sign, a couple of them over 30. But um, the, there's one thing I want to point out about the Super Bowl, and it's how it defied the basic raw ideas of the NFL. Kind of like the Denver Broncos, you know, compared to Carolina, the Denver Broncos had 10 players that were 30 or older. Going underneath, they had three players that are 29 and five players that were 28. So figure 18 out of 53 players were pretty much on their hind legs. Um, So, you know, Carolina is not that old. Um, I don't remember how many players they have over 30, but, you know, just saying that age isn't always a factor. I mean, I agree. Denver, you know, Denver, like I said, and, you know, those players that are problematic in some areas, I mean, Von Miller has had problems in the past, um, and they have Akeem Tlaib. I believe he had some issues. I don't remember DeMarcus Ware. Um, I think he had some issues, too, or he's just old, one of the two. But this idea that signing these players promotes, like, a loser's mentality, so to speak, is just wrong if you watch the Denver Broncos because everything that they did building up to the Super Bowl goes against the philosophies of the modern NFL building through the draft. Um, you know, younger guys, high energy, just, Oh, and on top of that, they also had Vernon Davis on the team. So yeah, yeah they've had some problems, you know, yeah, it's uh th- that was a real win for for people who who don't believe that you can you can add considerable talent through free agency even though I mean Vernon Davis didn't do anything but it's not like uh Peyton Manning was going to get him the ball anyway. And you have uh they draft a lot of defensive talent. And you know they draft late too. A lot of those guys who are big performers for them. Derek Wolf was a second round pick in 2012. They got Bradley Roby at the end of the first round, Shane Ray is going to be an important guy for them. They got him because the only reason they got him was because he, he fell in the draft because of the whole marijuana thing. But um, they got like Sylvester Williams late in the first round. They got, they scored a lot of good talent just by taking guys who slide or guys who fit what they want to do. So, I mean, they have a good thing going in that regard. I mean, like Tlaib is obviously a, a free agent uh, signing of theirs. Um, it's going to be interesting to see if they retain Danny Trevathan. 
I was a big fan of Danny Trevathan, actually, when he came out of Kentucky. I really liked him when he played there. Um, and DeMarcus Ware, total total free agent uh, signing. So, I mean, there's a lot of – and then if you look at it, I think it was their 2012 draft. I think it was 2012. I think they added, like uh, – I know. I wonder if that was the year when they were. They also brought in, brought on guys like, uh, I think Trevathan was in that draft. I think uh, Malik Jackson was in that. They had one year where they just completely unloaded, and it was just ridiculous. And I mean, like they had a great draft class, and it worked out for them. And I mean, like you got to be able to draft well, and you got to be able to to bring in uh, the right talent. Uh, yeah, I was right. Uh, I'm looking at their uh, their 2012 draft selections. If you're the Denver Broncos in 2012, these are the guys you selected. Derek Wolf, Brock Osweiler, Ronnie Hillman, Omar Bolton, uh, Phillip Lake's in there. Malik Jackson is in there as a fifth-round pick. In the sixth round, they get Danny Trevathan. That's ridiculous. I mean, Hillman, up, up until late, was a, a big contributor uh, Brock Osweiler might be their quarterback of the future. And then Derek Wolf, I mentioned, was uh, – I think he was selected. He was early in the second round. I want to say he was like 36th overall or something. But that's a that's a hell of a haul for one draft in, in guys who are big-time contributors for you. And then you're able to, to uh, supplement that talent and complement it with uh, some really impressive free agent signings. So – um, I'm, we were just making fun of John Elway. It's not hard to, um, but at the same time, I mean, they've, they've made all the right moves in, in terms of the draft for the most part. So if you're the Dolphins, you hope to just, uh, have a similar blueprint now that you got a new defensive guy in there now, and you've got some really nice pieces that you've brought in through free agency and the draft. One thing I, I guess I can also say that Carolina um, also has that age factor because they have 14 players over the age of 30. So, you know, it's kind of like um, I know I did a post the other day. Um, Miami actually has six players right now over the age of 30. That means one out of every seven players on the active roster right now is over the age of 30. Um, sometimes it takes a little experience to get to where you want to be. Yeah, I totally agree with that. We've got a, we've only got a minute or two left, so I'm going to go ahead and wrap this up for tonight. I appreciate all the guests who were able to come on. Uh, my old friend Joe Goodberry was able to uh, tell us, shed some insight on Miles Jack. I think Lewis is even a bigger fan now. Uh, I think we're all big fans of Miles Jack at this point, and we'll be fortunate if he falls to number eight. So we'll be on the lookout for that. Uh, Michael Carpenter, ESPN Radio 93.5 Champagne, was able to stop by. And, I mean, that conversation went everywhere. That was great. So I appreciate our guests. Uh, Duke had to leave us early. It sounded like uh, um, he had to spend some time with uh, his daughter, I think, just turned four recently. So that's exciting. And yeah, my as always, birthday was yesterday. The day before yesterday, I turned 38. Oh, happy birthday. Happy birthday. Thanks. And I was going to mention, uh, Aunt Lu- and my other co-host, Lewis, is uh, uh, typically flanking me on these shows. So I appreciate everyone who was able to stop by. 
Uh, we'll go ahead and we'll do this again next week. At some point, we'll move it back to Wednesday when my work schedule straightens out. Until then, we'll go ahead and uh, call for tonight, and we'll talk to you guys next week. Have a have a great weekend, and uh, see you later. See you later. Good night. Hello, I'm Ashley Carmen. I'm Caitlin Tiffany. We're the hosts of Why'd You Push That Button, the Verge's show about all the choices technology forces us to make. We're back for season three, talking about questions like, why do you delete your tweets? And why do you type in lowercase letters that make you seem like a serial killer? And why are you on an exclusive dating app? You're not that special. We're releasing a new episode every Wednesday, and you can find this anywhere you typically find podcasts, which is Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Pocket Casts. So go ahead and subscribe and check us out.